You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome this morning. So glad you're here. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Um, This is where we're at every Sunday. And uh, after announcements... We get into the Word of God, and we are going through the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 27, all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's what those little tables are back there that say Bibles. Anytime you can just walk in if you forgot your Bible, or you could go back there right now and grab one. And uh, if you don't have a Bible... Keep it. If you don't have one in the New Living Translation and you want one, keep it as well. Uh, But it's always up on PowerPoint just in case. So why don't we read together and then we'll we'll pray. Mark 11, 27, uh, all the way through 12, 12 says this. They arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, for they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for gathering us in this place. And we just simply but powerfully ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would speak to us. That through your word, by your spirit, you would anoint me to communicate these truths. And that us that are sitting here this morning would receive them as, as your truths for our lives. And so, God, would you do that? We want to be disciples, followers, learners of Jesus, and so we want to learn what it means to love and follow and give our lives to Jesus. 
And so, God, would you continue to do that work in us today? pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for context's sake, to remind you where we're at right now, if you were with us last week, you remember there's a pretty profound thing that happened in the book of Mark. It was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we talked all about how he did it and why he did it. Um, So if you missed that, please go ahead and, and listen to the podcast, catch up. But he did it on a donkey. He humbly came on a donkey, but it was to fulfill hundreds of years of prophecy. And the time had come for him to be proclaimed Messiah in a very public way. And what's important to note is that our story today picks up right after last week. And what's happening in Jerusalem is it's Passover week, and all of Israel has journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And Passover is remembering that God spared Israel from the hand of Pharaoh and rescued them out of Egypt. And so Passover was a way to come and remember what God had had done to their people. And it was a way to remember that God can do it again, and he can save us, and he can rescue us, and... Everybody, everybody that's Jewish, a practicing Jew, would be waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah was the one that was going to come and free them specifically from Rome at the time. Rome uh, was the oppressor. This was a Roman territory, Israel was. And so Israel was waiting for, for political freedom, one of the things. But Jesus came publicly heralded as the Messiah to bring so much more than their little finite minds could think of. They were thinking, free us from Rome. Jesus said, I want to die so the whole world could be saved from their sins. And this is what's happening. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem as the Messiah. And what he did last week was he overturned tables in the temple. He cursed a fig tree. All kinds of stuff happened last week. Lots going on. So go listen if you haven't. So today, we pick up right after this has all happened. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's confronting religious hypocrisy, and he's dealing with a lot of stuff that's just not going well. And we pick up here, and what's happening is, is that, honestly, all that's happened is creating a lot of attention. And these guys, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, what we call the Sanhedrin, just like the religious bosses of the day. That, that ruled over, that had authority over everything Jewish, specifically the temple, was confronting Jesus. This was like an intervention with Jesus. Pull him aside. There's 70 of them. They say, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? Right? These guys are confronting Jesus. There's a big commotion. Everyone's talking. Tens of thousands of people are in the city. Things are, 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 are heating up, so to speak. These guys were the bosses, the head honchos. They had the final word on everything religious, the temple, and everything that went on in there. If there was any authority, right, assumed authority or given authority of the temple, it were these guys. And Jesus was going into the temple, and he was literally throwing tables over. And he was rebuking, he was correcting what was happening in the temple, so rightfully so, These chief priests and elders in the Sanhedrin confronted Jesus and said, what do you think you're doing? And literally they say, what authority do you have to do such things? 
Or in other words, who do you think you are, Jesus of Nazareth? Like, who do you think you are? How can you come in and just do all these things and just wreck everything that's going on here? Come here and cause chaos. Jesus, in full Jesus form, does not answer their question. He actually asks them a question back. It's actually a great way to argue. Ask me a question, let me ask you a question back. He, he turns it back on them and he asks them a question. And what he does is he asks about John the Baptist. And he says, you know, I'm not going to answer your question. In order to answer your question, do you think John the Baptist was from God or not? This is Jesus' question back at them, these religious leaders. And if you, if you remember, John, we looked at in depth in Mark chapter 1. Just the first part of the book of Mark, we see John the Baptist. And if you don't know John the Baptist, John the Baptist is what we call uh, the forerunner of Christ or the herald of Christ. He was the one that came on the scene just before Jesus and he was preaching repentance. He was preaching, you know, forgiveness of sins, that God is the only one that can do that. And he was pointing to Jesus. There's one that will come that is far greater than me that will take away the sins of the world. And so we see this in Mark chapter one. John the Baptist is the, is the baptizer. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were going to the Jordan River to get baptized for the forgiveness of their sins with John. So John was a big deal. And so everyone knew about John the Baptist. Many people, if not everyone at the time, most people did see him as a prophet. And so Jesus's question was very pointed because depending on how they were going to answer was going to either tell if Jesus was God or if he wasn't. Because if they denied John being from God, everyone would have hated them. Because most people thought that John the Baptist was this prophet from God. And so if the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, denied John being from God, they would have had utter chaos on their hands. For everyone believed that John was a prophet. But if John was a prophet from God, then the deductive logic would be, well, John told everyone that I was the son of God. And even more than that, when John was baptizing me, if you remember in Mark chapter 1, the heavens split open. God the Father spoke about Jesus. This is my son whom I'm well pleased if you didn't remember that, that's what happened in Mark chapter 1. And so the question is, who do you believe John was? Because your answer to that will tell you who I am. And they thought it over, and they came up with a brilliant answer. They said, we don't know. We, we don't know. They, they knew. They, what they thought they knew. They had an answer. But for the sake of people-pleasing and keeping their reputation... They couldn't say one or the other, right? It would ruin everything that they had worked and believed. There was an inner turmoil that was happening. I mean, just think of this. These, these, these 70 leaders, the Sanhedrin, asking Jesus this question. Jesus had just confronted them for being hypocrites, religious hypocrites, you think you do all these religious works and you set up all these systems, but your hearts are far from God. And literally, by Jesus asking them this question, was confronting the framework 
of their life and of their religion, and it was beginning to unravel, right? The foundation upon which they had built their lives was being tested. Because, right, like if Jesus was God, then what he says goes, and we're doing everything wrong, and God's the one correcting us. But if he's not, then we got to deal with it right now in this guy. They were confronted with the Son of God, the Messiah, and they didn't know what to do. But instead of believing, instead of in that moment saying, yeah, the prophecy's fulfilled, John the Baptist, you on the donkey, all this Old Testament prophecy is coming to a head, you are the one. Instead of believing, these guys rejected Jesus and ultimately would be the ones that would be a part of killing him. So, like Jesus said, if you don't answer, I won't. He doesn't answer. And instead, he tells them a really heavy parable, speaking directly to them. Instead of asking, he speaks this parable. And this parable can be called the parable of the tenants or the parable of the landowner and the tenants. But what's, rem- what's important to remember is what a parable is. So Jesus uses this a lot. He speaks in parables. Parables are a story that's told, and many times it's involving very common, relatable subjects. The point of a parable is to communicate a really deep spiritual truth in a really easy way to understand, right? Jesus is trying to speak into the condition of their hearts because they're not getting that. He's going to use a very common example of of owner and tenants on a vineyard here. And this parable is very much relatable to chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, even even any Israelite at the time. Because what's important to note is that this idea of a vineyard wasn't a new one. It's not even for us. We know what a vineyard is. We know how it works. But even back then, much of life consisted of farming. You did it yourself, or you involved in it, or your family was. And you were used to cultivating and farming land. And in this, in this instance, it was producing wine. This was a way of life back then. Everyone was familiar. This wasn't some odd one-off parable, but they were very familiar specifically with not everyone owning land and a landowner owning the land, and there was servants or people that worked that land, and a part of that yield or a part of that crop went back to the owner. It's much like business today um, where the owner uh, of the company or of the business gets a portion of what is made from the, uh, the workers. So this is what's happening here. There's this land in this parable, owned by a landowner, and there's tenants, there's people that don't own the land but are working the land in order to produce fruit, and the landowner would get a percentage of that crop, and so I'm sure we can understand that also, but here's where we wouldn't obviously know about a vineyard. It's because a very common metaphor used in the Old Testament for Israel as a nation was this idea that Israel was a vineyard. Israel and God's people were a vineyard. And so over and over through the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the vineyard or God's vineyard. And so when Jesus began to speak about this parable and when he used vineyard, he didn't just use farm or any other piece of land. When he said vineyard, every single person listening knew he was talking directly to them. He was speaking of Israel. 
a vineyard was a national symbol for Israel. And even more, you're right, they're in the temple right now. And on the temple doors, the very temple in which Jesus was standing sported a, a 70 cubit foot tall engraved vine on the doors of the temple. And this was sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. And so every single person that entered the temple, that went to the temple, would see this vine, speaking of the vineyard, speaking of God's people in Israel. Moreover, Jesus uses phrases here directly out of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's called the song of the vineyard. And Isaiah the prophet is speaking over Israel, this song about God's love and also about his judgment. But he's using very descriptive, specific language to Israel to communicate his point here. And because of that, because of Israel being the vineyard, everyone would have known who the landowner is. The landowner is God. And God made this vineyard amazing, right? I mean, even the fact that they're in Israel at the time, that's the promised land. This is the, the land flowing with milk and honey that God, through generations, freed them from slavery, brought them back into. And so they're in this, quote unquote, amazing vineyard. Everything is at their fingertips. God has so much in store for them. It's a healthy Wonderful, amazing vineyard, so to speak, that God has made. And the desire that God has for this vineyard is that they would be a people to produce rich fruit, right? That their lives would bear fruit and give God glory. See, God desired that his people, Israel, this vineyard, would walk with him and obey his commands. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, over and over and over, this is what Israel did not do. Right? Israel turned from God and, and served other gods. They disobeyed the word. They, um, they turned their backs. And so over and over and over in this wonderful place that God has given them, that has so much in store for them, they've sadly time and time again turned their backs on God. And so in our parable, it says that in this vineyard, there was many servants that came to collect the fruit or to check up and see about the crop. How was the vineyard going? How much wine was being produced? And so the landowner was sending servants. And so what did the tenants of the land do to these servants? Well, they either hurt them badly or in some instances killed them. So these, in the parable, the servant after servant goes, the landowner sends them into the harvest to check on the fruit. They get beaten and killed. Well, these servants... If the, if the vineyard is the nation of Israel, these servants are the prophets. These are the Old Testament prophets. And so do you see the connection that Jesus is making here? You're the vineyard. It was good. God made you. And over and over, God sent prophets to try to see your fruit, redeem you, tell you the truth, remind you of what you're supposed to be doing. And over and over again, you hurt them, you mocked them, you killed them. And that is very true to what the nation of Israel did to God's prophets. Just to name a few, Elijah, he's driven into the wilderness by the monarchy, 1 Kings. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death 
near the altar, 2 2 Chronicles 24, and John the Baptist, the same guy that Jesus just used, the prophet, was beheaded by Herod. Over and over and over, you guys know through the Old Testament, if you've read it, the prophets that were to speak the truth of who God was and, and correct Israel from going astray, they were treated very much the same way as these servants were treated in this parable. And this was due to Israel wanting to take the vineyard for their own, so to speak, to do their own thing under their own authority. And what they did was, by by doing that, they rejected God, they rejected his rule, they rejected his authority, and all of a sudden, it comes to a head right here in our story today. Jesus, with all of the Jewish leaders, he's talking about thousands of years of history in this parable. And he gets, it gets even more pointed. He's saying God made you to be wonderful and amazing and to produce amazing fruit. And God over and over sent the prophets to you to be reminded. And when that didn't work, you know what the landowner did? He sent his only son. If you, have to, if you understand this, Jesus is saying this. God sent me to you as the last resort. Right? Jesus is speaking of himself. The prophets... They tried, and you didn't hear them. You rejected them and even killed some of them. But God, the vineyard owner, sent his only son, and he did that to try to reclaim and restore and renew what was happening. But what did the tenants of the vineyard do to the son? What we see is they they killed the son. This is exactly what was going to happen to Jesus days from this moment when Jesus was telling this parable. Right? Jesus was in that city. He wouldn't leave that city. He'd go to the cross for humanity. But what I want you to see is how many times God tried to spare and save his people. Like an absorbent amount. So many times we can think of God as this God that judges and kills and just so strict. And if we read the Old Testament, all we see is just God laying down the law and him judging his people. But what we fail to see is the span of how large the Old Testament is centuries. And then over and over and over, I mean, mercy, mercy, grace upon grace, God tried to save his people. And the people's response was always rejection of God's rule and God's authority. But what we see in this parable, we're reminded of in this parable, is how God's love pursues us. He's pursued Israel and pursues us, right? Despite how wicked God's people had gotten, instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant. He continued his pursuit of his people, Right Through rejections, through insults, through beatings. They didn't stop. And finally, he sent his only son, his only begotten son, to save the world. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of God's pursuing love, says this. If you reject him, speaking of Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, He dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. But do you see what's going on here? God did not 
only send his son to die just for Israel, but for the whole world. It's not, it's not just Israel. That was the start, but it's for the whole world. You guys, you guys know this. You guys learned it long ago if you've been in the church, John 3, 16 and 17. Right? God so loved the world. That doesn't just mean Israel. That means the whole world. And he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. In this parable, Jesus is speaking to Israel specifically. He's doing that. He's confronting Israel and the Jewish leaders. But these same truths relate and are for us as well. See, Israel and these religious leaders were not willing to come under the authority of Christ. Right? They were questioning Christ's authority. From what authority are you doing these things? They did not see him as God. They did not see him as the son of God. And they were unwilling to relinquish, relinquish excuse me, the authority they had in the temple, in their religion, in their lives. What they believed on a core level, what they had was theirs. And they weren't giving it up. But what I hope that you can see in this parable is the correlation to our own lives in this parable is that nothing is ours. The vineyard, the world that we live in, everything that we have is owned by God. We're just stewards of it, right? In this vineyard, that was true to these workers. It wasn't their vineyard. It wasn't their land. It was they were stewards to work and tend the land that was owned by God. See, God owns the vineyard and all that's in it. And that is true of our own lives as well. But the question is, are we willing to admit that and relinquish our authority? Or do we think, well, that's my house. That's my job. That's my family. That's my money. That's my retirement. That's my time. That's my gift. That's my time. Nothing is ours. Nothing is yours. Nothing is mine. It's all God's. When you come under that authority, I mean, when you truly believe and walk in that, your life will be radical, radically different maybe, right? Because we so often, and I know that some of us are like, well, no, it's, I know it's not mine, but when we when we fail to remember that everything that we have is on loan, it's a gift, and that we're all stewards. We're not owners of anything. We're like, no, but I work for that. But like, God gave you that, though. God provided that job. He provided that house. He gave you everything. He gives you the breath in the lungs, your lungs right now. Everything that we have is not our own. It's God's. And we're just like stewards of what he's given us. So that's why when you hear about, hey, be a good steward of what God's given you, it's, it's, it's because none of, us, none of us own any of it. And we're like these servants, these workers in the vineyards. And our goal actually, the, the, our purpose is to produce fruit for God's glory with what God has given us. That's a real thing to take home. It's okay, everything that I have, every, everything is God's. Am I using it for God's glory? Am I using it for his kingdom? Am I even thinking about that it's not mine? 
And that, and that goes on to a really deep level because so many of us struggle with the heartstrings to stuff and things and we make it ours instead of coming under the authority of Christ and saying, you know what? I don't own anything, God. You own everything. What I hope you can see too is that God is pursuing us. He wasn't just pursuing Israel. It wasn't just about Israel. Those were his people and that was the start. But God loves the whole world and he is pursuing every man, woman, and child from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's pursuing us with his, with his love to save us. And he always has and he always will. God is pursuing you. He'll never give up pursuing you. And for some of us, we may maybe still aren't letting go. For some of you in here, you may still be running and dodging and, and unable to, to give in to God. You're so concerned with your own authority and your own life and living your own life for yourself that you haven't surrendered, that you haven't given up, that you haven't let go. We're still denying, still rejecting. and You know, God's love, God's pursuing love, may look like the text you got last week from the friend that said you should go to church. Or it may be like the bumper sticker that you saw or the he is greater than I sticker or shirt that you saw. Little after little, God is pursuing you. Could have been the sermon. Could have been the podcast you listened to. Could have been like, man, so random that so-and-so invited me to church today. It's not random. It's God. God's pursuing you and wanting you and coming after you and loves you so much. I mean, loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and he's going to remind you of that truth and of that love till, <laughs> till he gets you. Because <laughs> he loves you that much. He has such a plan. He has such a purpose. The vineyard is so good. It is so good what God has for you and all we have to do is say, God, you're good. You're better. It's your way. It's not my way. I give up. All of us, this is God pursuing us. God pursuing to get us. Lastly, we see this section end with Jesus actually quoting scripture to the Sanhedrin. So he ends with, <clears throat> if you look in our text today, he says, haven't you read this passage? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in your eyes. This quotation that Jesus speaks is actually from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 22 through 23, exactly. And these are called one of the halal psalms. And what's interesting is on the way to Passover, in the city in Jerusalem during Passover, Psalm 118 would have been sung. It would be something that you would be singing at the time of Passover. And so Jesus very pointedly brings up this psalm that they had been singing about the, the Jesus being the chief cornerstone or specifically the Messiah being the cornerstone. Because we wouldn't know this, but Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that told of the Messiah, how he would come, what he would look like, and what he would do. And so Jesus in this parable, all that he says, he ends with this idea of, of the Messiah being the cornerstone. Now, I'm not too good at building things. 
and specifically stonemasonry. Neither are probably many of us because it's a little bit of a lost art. But back then, you built everything with stones. And the first stone that you would lay in the corner was called the cornerstone. And this stone was used to line up and build these two walls, which then again would actually build those two walls. And so the cornerstone was like the base of the base. You would line everything up to it. And so it was really important that you got that first stone right because your whole house would be off if you didn't have this at the right angle, at the right spacing, and that you always referred to the cornerstone. Might have gotten that all wrong, but I don't think so. It keeps everything square and on track. I just feel like I don't know what I'm talking about So when it comes to a cornerstone and building. But I'm right, like architects, right? Mm? No. Seth? No. He's, no. 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 Andrew? No. 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 There's a lot of architects. Eric here? No. Okay. Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, guys. But Israel, for the most of it, this is where it all comes home, had not made Jesus their cornerstone. They had not built their lives upon Christ. They were waiting for the Messiah. Most of Israel did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because the point, Lord bless him. Let me say a quick prayer. I don't know. Palolo. It's crazy sometimes. <laughs> God, we just pray for what's happening in the valley right now, in the ambulance, sirens. We just ask God that you'd cover that, heal them. Pour your spirit upon the situation. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Back to the cornerstone. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they, they were not basing their lives on him being the cornerstone. So the question for us today is, have we built our lives with Jesus being the cornerstone? And what I mean by that is he the base for everything else in our life. The same way that a builder always refers to the cornerstone, back and forth. Everything depends on that. Are we doing that with Jesus? Or is Jesus just a cool thing? We do it on Sundays and we say his name and we pretend. Or is he the thing by which everything else falls in line? That's why Jesus ends here, because nothing else matters. If you do not have Jesus as the base of everything, if he's your all in all, if he's, if he's your Lord, if all authority is his in your life, then things will go awry. Things will not line up. Things will not be as they should be unless Jesus is the cornerstone, unless he is the thing upon which we've built on. Amen? Let me read one couple verses, and then we'll worship. Ephesians 2 19 through 22, this is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, speaking of Christ as the cornerstone. It says, now therefore, speaking of the church, speaking of believers, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Paul's point here is the foundation of our faith and what we build upon is Christ. 
and him being our cornerstone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. God, we thank you for your word this morning. And we, we want to thank you and we worship you for the way in which you pursue us. That you don't give up. That you sent your only son. That you do whatever it took to get us. You love us that much. And Lord, it's the way that you designed it. We were designed to be led by you. We weren't designed to lead, to, to lead our life ourselves. And God, we want to come back to the place. Maybe for some of us, it's the first time. We've never given up. We've never surrendered. We never allowed you to be God in our life. And maybe for some of us, it's just we've gotten a little bit off. Our, heart, our hearts have, have built ourselves on something else. Or there's things that are getting in the way of you. And so, God, we want to we assess, we want to address, we want to take stock and check our hearts today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that during our time of worship, that we would spend it worshiping you because you're God and you're good and you're awesome and you're worthy of worship. But also, I pray, God, that we would really assess our own lives and take stock of, of where we have you as the cornerstone or not. And, and we want to we wanna hear from you. We want to worship you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, as always, if you, if you haven't been with us, um, we have a couple things and ways that you can respond um, during these first or these last few songs of worship. Um, one is that we just want to make aware that you can worship Jesus where you're at, how you need to. If you want to come up and um, kneel on the carpets, lay on the carpets and just surrender and worship and, and praise God that way, go for it. If you want to stand, raise your hands, you want to go in the back, you can do that. There's freedom to worship in this place. Also, we have communion every Sunday to the right or to the left over there on those tables. And communion is a way just to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so you can take it, it says in scripture, as, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember it, um, Christ's sacrifice when you do that. And then also we have uh, men and women in the back that would love to pray for you. Just come and pray for anything that's going on in your life, anything that God spoke to you. And um, let's just make the most of this time right now.